Welcome to Work-Life Confidential with your host, Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Work-Life Confidential gets to the heart of uncomfortable, sometimes taboo topics. Bosses and coworkers behaving badly, other workplace stresses, gender, race, money, and their effect on everything that happens at work and in your life outside of work. Together, we'll find the answers you've been looking for. Now, here is Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Welcome to Work Life Confidential. I'm Ken Dolan Delvecchio. I want to start with a couple of very quick stories. So let's go back to 1993. I am in my very early 30s. I am the recent father of the best son one could possibly have. He's about six months old. And I am called into a meeting, a special meeting, at the hospital where I worked as a psychiatric social worker. And so a number of us are there, a number of the clinical team, and we are told that we no longer have jobs. And it was very, very traumatic. And I have to say, the first thing I thought about was, I'm so glad I found a sitter for my son because I really wouldn't have wanted to have my six-month-old or so sitting with me when I was so upset. And I remember a little while after, my colleagues and I were in an outplacement firm meeting, a class, if you will, and it was the first class. And I was sitting next to my friend, the clinical psychologist, And the instructor asked us, what is one of your primary values that you can offer to an employer? And I said, I'm disposable. And (laughs) so there's a lot of pain. I say that now and chuckle. Everything worked out well, but it was a lot of pain. And then fast forward 20-something years later, and I am tasked, my team is tasked, with meeting with people as they are being downsized and exited from the organization. Very painful thing for many, many, many people. As many of you who are listening probably know from experience, either your own or people close to you. And I also had the the task of meeting with the human resources leaders who had executed the downsizing. And I was sitting with a vice president who had done this many, many times after the debrief meeting with his team. And I said, Vin, how do you do this? How do you manage this? And he said, how do I manage it, Ken? Two triple bypasses so far. That's how I manage it. So we're going to be talking about some of the realities that are part of many organizations, work systems. And we have a gentleman with us who is, 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 is such an expert and it is a huge privilege to have him here. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer is a professor of organizational behavior at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. His most recent book is Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance, and What We Can Do About It. He's the author or co-author of 15 books in total. I love some of the titles, one of which is The Human Equation. And then I think this may be my favorite, even above his most recent one. One of his books is titled Leadership BS. He is also the the author of more than 150 articles and book chapters. He has taught at Harvard Business School, London Business School, Singapore Management University, and IESE Business School in Barcelona, and he's given talks in 39 countries. He received an honorary doctorate from Tilburg University in the Netherlands. He writes 
all the time. He writes twice monthly for Fortune.com. He has written for Business 2.0, the CEIBS Business Review in China, Capital Magazine in Turkey, and numerous blogs in the U.S. At Stanford, he teaches a popular second-year MBA elective, The Paths to Power, he serves on the board of Berlin Packaging and a nonprofit, Quantum Leap Healthcare. You can learn more about Dr. Pfeffer at Jeffrey Pfeffer, and that's Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Pfeffer, P-F-E-F-F-E-R.com. And you can visit him also on Twitter and Facebook at Jeffrey Pfeffer. Welcome, Dr. Pfeffer. It is a great privilege to have you with us. It's a privilege, and thank you for the very kind and generous introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. So you have written, and I'm taking this quote from your book, cutting people only makes the company smaller, not better, and certainly not better able to serve customer needs, or as we have seen, more productive, efficient, or innovative. I wonder if you can speak to this a bit because I always assumed that there was in fact a valid profit-driven reason for reorgs and layoffs and you're saying there actually isn't. That is absolutely correct. There was a study done by a guy named Art Boudros of now probably more than 20, 25 years ago, in which he found that the single best predictor of a company doing a layoff is not whether or not the company is facing some financial distress, but whether or not the company is socially connected, for instance, to its board of directors, to other companies that have done layoffs. Layoffs are really a matter more of fashion and custom and what everybody thinks they need to be doing rather than having any particular economic benefit. The research on layoffs shows that they do not increase stock price, they do not increase profitability, they do not increase productivity, um, they in fact do increase, of course, fear and, uh, and a sense of economic insecurity. And uh, and as your introductory comments, I think, nicely pointed out, they are hard, obviously, on the people being laid off, and they're hard on the people doing the layoffs as well. And, uh, and in fact, layoffs have enormous health effects. Uh, some studies, and, and, and this is true for around the world, uh, studies of layoffs show that uh, following a layoff, the rate of suicide goes up by about two to two and a half times, and the rate of dying from a heart attack goes up about 40%. So there, there's a huge health consequence to layoffs, even though they don't benefit the companies very much. I am, I am so startled by your declaration that what has be i mean it's rife layoffs are everywhere that they are just a that they are a matter of custom and not and not driven by business imperatives i i i'm so i'm so astonished by that what what is blocking well, the business yeah, community so I interrupt ken i think you should not be so astonished by that i mean about 10 years ago my dear friend and colleague bob sutton and i uh, wrote a book um, which was had, which has a bad title called Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths, and Total Nonsense. But it's a mm -hmm. book about evidence-based management. And there is an evidence-based management 
kind of movement afoot in the world. There's a Center for Evidence-Based Management headquartered in the Netherlands, and people like Adam Grant have been behind, and Laszlo Bach, the famous ex-head of HR at Google, are certainly behind a, a, an attempt to bring evidence into management practice. But, but many, many, many of the decisions that companies make today are not based upon any review of the evidence or the data or the facts. Not just with respect to layoffs, but with respect to many things. So you can go not only to the academic literature, but to the consultants, and they will tell you that mergers mostly fail to create economic value, but mergers continue. Uh, there are just tons of examples. So it shouldn't surprise you that in this domain as well, companies are not acting on the basis of evidence. Uh, we will, I'm sure, in the course of our conversation together, talk about work hours. There's no evidence that work hours helps anybody. And in fact, there's a fair amount of evidence that suggests that the longer you work, the less productive you become. And this is true at both the national level and the level of industry. So there are, there are many, many examples of, uh, of things that companies do that are based upon nothing other than custom or what somebody thinks ought to work or some fad or some fashion. So uh, it's, it's something to hear. And to me, it just sparks the extraordinary importance of, of doing your research and also using critical judgment and not just going along with what seems to be the trend. I, I've seen so many times when a new leader takes on the role of leading an, an organization, they, they just make changes as though somehow that's necessary. And often that, that causes all kinds of pain. And I, and I often wonder, is it really any better? Is it any more effective? Or is it just, I have to, I have to put my own mark on it? So I'll, I'll leave think, that for the. I think that's exa- I think that's exactly right. The current president is a wonderful example of that. But even prior, you know, to him being such a good example, um, uh, you can look at the. I think you're exactly right. The leaders come in and they want to. They want to, if you will, mark their territory. Um, and the way they mark their territory is by doing by by doing the opposite of what the previous leader did, regardless of whether it was effective or not. And this is particularly true for leaders who come in from outside. Yeah, and and I have to say I love that you mentioned the president, but <laughs> I guess we really shouldn't go there. But no, anyway, no, the, but I mean, I mean, so what he's done is that not that un, uh, unusual as you no, pointed no, out. No. Yes, I mean, you know, yeah. leaders come in and they basically want to make change because they want to, you know, they want to show that they're like there. Yes. Now I have a friend and colleague, and she tells me that she works every weekend every weekend and i i say to her you know you got to take care of yourself it's it's okay not to not to stay on top of every little detail but to sort of ride the wave of priorities so that you actually create a life for yourself but i wonder if you can talk more about about the costs of overwork the costs of just working all your waking hours, and sometimes and then some, I think. Well, um, the, you know, the uh, occupational, not so much occupational safety and health administration, but the um, the agency that, that OSHA is part of, in 2004, uh, did a summary of the research on work hours and shift work and found that it had negative health effects 
there was a study done in California of thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people that found a correlation, a pretty straightforward correlation between hours of work, uh, hours of work and high blood pressure. Uh, there have been studies done that have found uh, the effect of hours of work on mortality and other indicators of morbidity. Um, and, and, and we know through a bunch of books that have come out recently on the importance of sleep that, um, you know, that sleep is very important for our health and for the functioning of the immune system, and you cannot be sleeping while you're working, for the most part. So we, again, I think, know that um, that, that work hours are, are hazardous to people's health. And, you know, work hours and layoffs and a few other things, which go on quite regularly in the workplace, is one of the reasons why work has become, I think, well, many work environments are, are really a manifestation of a public health crisis. Uh, healthcare costs are rising around the world, and if we want to address healthcare costs, we're going to have to do something about the work environment, because many work environments are very toxic. <laughs> and I do want to ask you to talk some about the, the healthcare system that we have and the ways that it's tied to the workplace. And I believe one of the other points that you that you expose as a myth is the 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 greatness of the healthcare system. It may look great on paper, but so many people experience such a challenge with just getting their care and then getting their care funded. And I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about that. Sure. Well, as we know, in the United States, unlike any other advanced industrialized country, not only your access to health care, but, uh, but the conditions under which you're going to access health care, how much you're going to pay, how much your employer is going to pay, your co-payments, and basically everything else is determined unilaterally, unless you're in a collective bargaining agreement, which almost nobody is anymore, uh, by your employer. And, uh, you know, the Gallup organization did a survey uh, within the last year or so and, based, and asked the following question. Have you in the last year had to forego either filling a prescription or seeing a doctor because of cost? And believe it or not, in the United States, one of the richest countries in the world, one-third of the respondents to the Gallup survey answered that question in the affirmative, saying, yes, I either did not fill a prescription or did not see a doctor uh, because of cost. Now, that number is obviously lower for, for people with health insurance than it is for those without it. But even for people with health insurance, uh, on about, uh, about 10% of the people uh, still could, uh, were foregoing some level of care uh, because of cost. Uh, medical costs is one of the leading cost sources of personal bankruptcy, according to, uh, to research. And, um, and, and, uh, and the, the evidence is absolutely clear uh, that um, the absence of health insurance kills people. It is uh, in a study that two colleagues and I did, which we report on in Dying for a Paycheck, um, we found uh, that the workplace in aggregate is associated with 120,000 excess deaths per year, which makes the workplace the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, worse than Alzheimer's, worse than kidney disease. And one of the things in the in, in work environments that is most associated with um, with these excess deaths is the absence of 
of health insurance, the, the absence, and because when you don't have health insurance, you don't access health care. When you don't access health care, you don't get preventive screenings. And when you finally do present with a disease such as breast cancer or um, uterine cancer or some other diseases, the disease is going to be much more advanced and your prognosis is going to be much worse. So health and access to health care, the, the, the two things that companies do that are the, probably the worst things for, uh, for people's health is doing things that, that, that cause people to not be able to access health care. That's number one. And number two, um, is stressing them out through things such mm-hmm. as layoffs and long work hours. Yep. Well, we'll come back and continue our conversation for a bit about health care in the workplace after this pause. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects, mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI, the workforce resilience expert, is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at 1-800-987-1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI, the workforce resilience experts. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Del Vecchio.
Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer, author of Dying for a Paycheck, Leadership BS, and many other important works. And I'm wondering, Dr. Pfeffer, if you can talk some about what I might call the illusion of health care coverage or health insurance. So many people have coverage, but it is a nightmare to try to get their claims paid. Have you seen that in your work and research? Absolutely. And here's one of the great ironies. I mean, there are many delicious ironies um, that I found in researching dying for a paycheck, but here's one of the saddest. So companies, most large employers in the United States are today self-insured, but of course, virtually all employers administer their benefits through one of these benefits companies, a company such as Aetna or Humana or United Healthcare or one of the Blues or Anthem Blue Cross. And uh, and here's what's here's what is truly ironic. If you look, most of those health benefits administrators have net promoter scores. In other words, the difference between people who would recommend them to a friend and those who wouldn't that are close to zero or in some cases negative. So health so so companies have hired benefits administrators who are taking the company's money and using it in a way that basically upsets the company's employees. And so companies are paying for benefits that the employees at the end of the day and hassling with these benefits administrators don't experience as a benefit. You know, I'm on the advisory board of a company called Collective Health, which is headquartered in San Francisco and which has begun um, which was begun to actually provide health insurance that is and health insurance benefits that are relatively frictionless and employee oriented so that the employer actually gets some benefit out of providing of pro- providing the benefit oftentimes at substantial costs but most of these health benefits administrators as you and I were discussing during the break are in the business of denying claims rather than paying claims and of providing a hassle I'm on the committee that administers uh, and oversees the health insurance program at Stanford, and I asked our, our head, who's a very good guy, the vice president of benefits here, how much we were paying um, at the time, California Blue Shield, uh, to, just to do the administration. And he said, well, we're paying them $3 million a year. And I said, I could provide half, I could provide that much aggravation at at least half the price. Um, you know, so, I mean, we are, we are paying, but this is up to the employers. If the employers cared and wanted to measure this and worried about the net promoter scores of the companies and vendors they were using, uh, they could do a much better job of this. And they could also make life much less stressful and much easier for their employees. Well, I, I have to tell you, my impression of why this happens is largely because the people who manage the benefits within large employers get their information about how things are going from the benefits vendor itself. And so there's a closed loop where they're, and they often don't have direct access, or it's hard for the participants in the plans to get to the people who own the relationships with the benefits providers. And and I have to tell you this this quick story. I, I work for Prudential where there was a very forward, there is, I'm sure still, a very forward thinking way of approaching benefits where there was actually an effort to get people to get their care and to get it in a smooth way. And many years ago, 
we were I was talking with the gentleman who was responsible for behavioral health benefits at one of the major plans. And he told me, he said, I got a funny story for you. I got a new boss. He took me in his office and started calling me on the carpet saying, you're you're spending way too much of the company's money on mental health care. You have to you have to cut back. You have to deny. And he said, no, no, no. Wait a minute. Prudential actually wants to provide care for its its employees and their family members. They actually want to p- provide care. And that was that was necessary in order to calm his supervisor because just as you're describing, the impetu- the the emphasis was on denying <laughs> denying costs, not providing care. So very, very troubling situation. And I, I just hope more and more benefit managers have a loop either to their health and wellness organization, if they have one in their company, or their employee assistance program, or a direct link to hear from employees and family members, how is it really going? Because what you just described matches my anecdotal sense of what how it's going for most participants. Well, I can tell you that you know, because it's on the Collective Health website, um, the, 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 um, the net promoter scores, I believe, are available. And so you don't actually have to do a survey, and you certainly don't need to take the words of your benefits administrators for it. Um, all you need to do is, is, is look at their net promoter scores, and you can see many of them are in the single digits or in, in many instances are, in fact, negative. And because we've permitted so many mergers and so much consolidation, in all sectors of the economy, but certainly in the in the health um, health benefits uh, sector of the economy, there are basically only a relatively small number of organizations operating in any geography left. Um, many of these organizations basically don't care what their net promoter scores are because they figure they're in a pretty much a you know a, an oligopoly position, and there isn't that much competition, so they don't need to worry about whether they're providing a service or not. Right, which there are some, there are some organizations, some business organizations that are trying to counter that by bringing employers together into yep. collectives where they will have some kind of increased leverage. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. That, that's very much what I've seen as well. I wonder if you can talk about and and this phrase just really stood out to me when I was reading your most recent book, Magic Roundabout. What is that? Well, the Magic Roundabout um, is, a, is a something that occurs in the famous um, investment banking industry where basically um, uh, many of the relatively low-level and, for that matter, even more senior-level people work you know, for for close to 24 hours, and um, and but of course, if you work continually and you never went home, um, you would after a while, you know, smell and need to brush your teeth. And so, the magic roundabout is you get picked up from your em- employer maybe at three or four in the morning. You go home, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you shave, you change your clothes, uh, so you look better and you, you know, you've made yourself a little bit more presentable, and then you go back. Uh, uh, and then you go back to work without ever having slept. And there was a case which I reported in Dying for a Paycheck of a Merrill Lynch intern who did this for 72 hours straight. He was in his 24, he was in his early 20s, and he then collapsed and died because um, it turns out he had epilepsy and going this long without sleep apparently set off a fatal seizure. But uh, But this is quite common. It is a form 
of death from overwork, uh, mm-hmm. for which they have a special word in Japan and a special word in China. There was an article in China, which I cite in Dying for a Paycheck, which estimates that one million Chinese a year are dying from overwork. Um, Japan and Japan, the Ministry of Labor has death from overwork as a separate category of, of death and, um, and one of the occupational hazards. But what's interesting to me is that even though we recognize how harmful an absence of sleep is for the operation of the immune system and what it does uh, to your endocrine system and everything else, uh, we uh, and while we regulate it for blue-collar workers, we do not regulate it very much for white-collar workers or for, for so-called exempt employees. And what this has meant is that, the, and one of the things I found in Dying for a Paycheck, is that we used to think of occupational dangers as something that affected, the, I don't know, miners or people in chemical plants or bricklayers or something. And now dangers and hazards from the workplace have pervaded um, all of the pervaded occupations and they pervaded industries. One of the things I cite in Dying for a Paycheck is the Uber engineer making $170,000 a year who was so stressed that he committed suicide. Um, there are many of the stories that I cite in Dying for a Paycheck are of white-collar people making good incomes. So, the, so we have now created hazardous workplaces that affect not only blue-collar work but white-collar work as well. And throughout the income level, um, and throughout, you know, and, uh, and across industries. So we have truly created toxic workplaces that are quite pervasive, and that, I believe, is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why we see the soaring health care costs around the world. And and you write in Dying for a Paycheck, and I've witnessed this personally on a couple of occasions, that many people adapt to this by by claiming overwork as a badge of honor. Busyness is cool. I saw you quote that from the Huffington Post, I believe, in your in yep. your book. And it, it's 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 truly scary to see people talk about how they're giving up their lives for work is something that they feel proud of. I wonder if we can shift a little bit and talk about some of the workplaces that are examples of doing it differently. And I know you've talked about Pantagonia as one. I wonder if you can talk about what makes them special. There are a number of workplaces that have decided, for good reason, uh, mm-hmm. that they are going to emphasize employee health. I mean, first of all, it should not surprise anybody, but there have been studies of this that demonstrate this quite nicely empirically, that stressed employees are likely more likely to quit. Turnover is expensive. It should not surprise anybody, but again, there have been quite systematic studies to demonstrate this common sense finding. Sick employees are not as productive. So therefore, you know, we have created a situation in which not only are employees losing, but employers are losing as well. Some smart employers have said, we want to minimize our turnover because turnover is expensive. And we would like to have a healthy workplace in which people are both physically and mentally um, uh, you know, we, we're, we're operating in a way in which people are both physically and mentally sustainable. We're doing something just as we steward our, environment, our environmental 
resources. We need to steward our human resources for the same reason, that to, uh, to not use them up and, and, um, and do things in a very sustainable fashion. Patagonia is certainly an exemplar of this. Um, I mean, their co-founder or their founder wrote a book called Let My People Go Surfing. They have every other weekend a three they weekend, they measure their head of HR told me that he measures the percentage of women who, once they get pregnant, return to work at Patagonia as a way of making sure that they have um, a set of policies that accommodate uh, parents who want to both have a life and see their children and also continue to work. And the number for Patagonia for women who have a child and return to work is about 99%. And that's, he thinks, of course, which it is, is very good because they have tried to do things to to make it possible for people to, to work in a fashion um, that does not harm their physical and mental health. And, you know, other companies that do this would include, obviously, SAS Institute, which for years has been high up on the great places to work list and is in the software business, has a 35-hour work week, has, again, very nice work family accommodations, um, does things to uh, try to take care of its people. Um, Barry Waymiller, the conglomerate based in St. Louis, Bob Chapman, who wrote a book called Everybody Matters, has also been a, a leader in trying to, uh, you know, make sure that the, that the people are healthy. Um, and, and Zillow would be another. There are large, there are a relatively large number of companies, but not as many as there should be, that understand that if you take care of your employees, you're much more likely to reduce turnover. And, um, and and have people who are therefore going to be committed and willing to give you their discretionary effort, which is very important in enhancing high performance. You would think perhaps that it would be common sense, that it would be clear that if we treat people as human beings instead of human capital or human resources or some other objectifying term, that we would know that people need to have time in their life for other things. It's great to know that some organizations are are taking this to heart. And 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 how are they doing? Are they are they doing as well as those that are in the cycle of of laying off and rehiring and merging and all of those kinds of things, or are they collapsing as a result of their humane focus? No, they're they're actually doing much better. Um, as I wrote in a book called The Human Equation, Building Profits by Putting People First, we've known literally for decades that companies that invest in their people and take care of their people are more productive and more profitable. And the typical advantage is around 30 or 40 percent, believe it or not. It's, it's, it's quite a significant advantage. Um, and that's because you have... You know, you have people who understand the business better. You don't have the turnover. Um, you you have people who are willing to work hard and engage in discretionary effort. You have people who know what they're doing because they've been around a while and have the experience 
that comes from acquiring tacit knowledge from working for a while in the organization. And and so all these things give these companies a, a huge advantage, and we've known this for decades. Um, the, the, the companies, I mean, if you go to the Great Place to Work website, um, you'll see that the, for the publicly traded companies on their list, they outperform the unmanaged index, often by a significant amount. So we've known this for 30 or 40 years, that, that if you take care of your people, um, you, first of all, for the self-insured employers, you reduce your health care costs. Um, and secondly, you reduce your turnover. And thirdly, you have a more motivated and committed workforce. It, it all it all holds together. It all makes sense. We're coming up against a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the basics, the critical elements to having a healthy, mentally healthy workplace. Stay with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI, the workforce resilience expert, is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at 1-800-987-1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI the workforce resilience experts. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects, mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer, author of Dying for a Paycheck, 
Leadership BS, The Human Equation, and a bunch of other very, very helpful publications. I'd like to spend the last bit of time that we have together talking about the fundamentals of a healthy workplace, but even more importantly, what everyone can do to take the best care of themselves. So I wonder, Professor Pfeffer, if you could just maybe mention a couple things that are key to a healthy workplace and then talk some about what can each of us do for ourselves, for our own health and well-being. Well, there are two elements, I think, that are really crucial for a healthy workplace, and neither of them cost companies very much, if anything, and both of them um, are, are very helpful in improving people's both physical and mental health. Number one is to provide people social support. We are humans are, are social creatures. We love to be in contact with and and. Um, and supported by people around us. It's why f having friends is so important for health, as many studies have shown. And one of the things that companies can do is build a supportive a set of social supports at work, have social events that bring people together, offer people support when they are having personal tragedies or setbacks, such as a death in the family or something, and to come together and show that people in the organization and the organization itself cares about them. And that I think people will find uh, quite 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 supportive and, a, and quite a good thing to do. And the second thing that companies can do is to let is to treat people like adults um, and not over micro not micromanage them and eliminate all of their job control. We've known for decades that people who have more autonomy at work are more motivated and more engaged with their jobs. And a, once again, delegation doesn't cost anything to give people more decision discretion, more authority um, to control what they do and when they do it. So it's one thing to say to you, you know, Ken, I need you to do X uh, by such and such a time, it's another thing to tell you precisely how to do it and micromanage you, which most people will experience is stressful and demotivating. So if you give people job autonomy and if you give them a climate of social support, uh, you will be well on your way to creating a healthy workplace. Okay, so some of those are some of the basics. Let's say I work at an organization where it is normal for, or expected, I should say, for me to be at my desk or on the trading floor at 6 a.m., and it would be frowned upon if I left any time before 7.30 p.m., and I am getting more and more run down. My relationships are, are suffering. My, I'm gaining weight. Uh, what, are, what can I do? What are some recommendations for for practically making or beginning to make changes? Well, I think there are a couple things you can do. The first thing you can do is you can consider leaving. And people say, well, you know, I can't really leave. And I say to them, um, in an article published in Behavioral Science and Policy, my two operations research colleagues and I uh, published a paper that showed that most of the workplace um, conditions that we are talking about are as harmful to health as secondhand smoke. And so I, say, so I say to people, if you were in a room that was filling up with smoke, and I said to you, what you need to do is get out of the room, you told me you couldn't. You know, I mean, we're basically at an impasse because some of this stuff is so toxic to health uh, that you really need to remove yourself from the situation. Um, and the, 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 the room filling up with smoke, I think, is a, is a very nice analogy. The second thing you can do if you really can't leave, uh, people, I don't think, actually... 
understand what the, the, the truth of what I'm about to say. You do not have to be in a labor union, though, of course, you could be. But you're, you have a right under the law in most states, and certainly, I think, in the federal government. You have a right to get together with your coworkers to discuss conditions of work and to try to take collective action to bring those conditions of work to the attention of your employer. So I, I, I think it is almost impossible for me to conceive of an individual going to his or her boss or the CEO of the company and saying, by the way, boss, you're working us too hard. Uh, we're being micromanaged. We're not getting proper work family accommodation. Um, you know, we're facing too much economic insecurity. I think people are going to be rightfully afraid to do that. But if you get together with your colleagues and you were to go en masse or you were to go as a representative of a larger group, then it is not just you whining and complaining. It is you representing a set of employees who have valid and important concerns about the conditions of the work environment, which, by the way, are harming your employer as well as you. And and if you take that collective action, you are statutorily um, uh, protected. And the third thing you could do, which I don't see very many people doing, is we do have an Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which has done over the years a fabulously fantastic job in reducing the workplace incidents of both sickness and death that comes, if you will, from physical hazards, things like not having you know, proper equipment on saws or chemical spills and, uh, and trips and falls and things like that, like that. They have done, I think, a fantastic job in reducing, if you will, physical dangers in the workplace. The next thing they need to address is psychosocial hazards in the workplace, the kinds of things that we've been talking about, excessive work hours, work-family conflict, economic insecurity, all the stressors that are, that are creating enormous amounts of ill health and, by the way, lost work days. And it is, in fact, possible to file an OSHA complaint and see what they will do about that. And if you file an OSHA complaint, you are again protected by law against being fired for, as, as a retaliation for having fired that, uh, filed that complaint. So th th those three things, either leave, get together with your colleagues and, and make a, um, and go to your boss or the CEO and say, you know, by the way, this is hurting you as well as us and we ought to do something about this and or filing a complaint with OSHA or your state OSHA um, agency are the three things that I would think that people could do uh, to redress the situation. Because I can tell you, having now talked to a number of HR people um, and a number of people in a variety of roles and organizations, and this is not going to change um, by itself and without some kind of either regulatory or internal pressure. Um, I, I don't see many organizations. Um, I see obviously some, and we've talked about some of them, but most organizations I do not think take human health and well-being very seriously, even though they may say differently. When you look at the, how what their actions are, they are inconsistent with building healthy workplaces. So if we are going to cut the enormous toll, both physical and economic toll, uh, that these unhealthy workplaces are exacting on human beings and the larger society, uh, people are going to have to step up to the plate and take some action to change things. 
One of the, and I, I love your suggestions, I do wonder about the effort to collectively approach leadership. I've seen those kinds of efforts and what I've seen happen, and it probably doesn't happen in every case, but they are interceded by human resources and the individuals are told that they need to raise their concerns individually to their individual management and human resources consultants. I think it probably has a lot to do with the overall disposition of the culture to its employees. But it, I think those are great suggestions and, and it's important for people to know what their, what their rights are. One of, the, one of the ways that I've seen some success as well is to, for people to individually just start setting limits and to start leaving at a time that's reasonable for them to start assertively negotiating with their direct supervisor about the work that they are going to deliver, the deadlines, the priorities, those kinds of things. That And to do things like take their lunch, take their vacation. I can't tell you how many people, and I, I know you know this as well, they have six weeks of vacation on the books, they take a week, a year. But if if people actually start asserting and using what supposedly are the the benefits that they have and also reasonable limits sometimes they can begin to create pockets of of almost like cultural resistance if you will within an organization that has those outrageous overwork expectations have you seen that kind of effort as well um Occasionally, but not very often, and that's right. I think because, right. as you know, Ken, we are we are social creatures. We're affected by what the people around us are doing. Yep. If everybody around me, I had somebody actually say this to me one day. They said to me, they said, "What makes me think that I can leave in six o'clock when everybody else is working till ten or eleven or midnight? What makes me think that I'm so special?" So we are affected by what the people around us do, and while it is in theory possible for me to set limits. It's hard to do that as an individual because I'm going to stand out and, you know, the boss is going to say, you know, Ken, why are you leaving? Nobody else is. And, and, and I, think, I think you put yourself at much greater risk than if you do this as a, as a group. And and that's absolutely so. And that's and I'll put a plug in here for behavioral health and coaching resources. So if you have an employee assistance program and you connect to one of the counselors through that program, they may be a support for you in taking this kind of assertive action. I absolutely agree with you. You need support if you're going to buck the norm. And and so you don't want to do this alone. You may, in fact, also be able to to connect with a coworker who's going to do the same, because that's what you'll you'll need. You'll need some kind of validation. And one thing that I do know, though, is if if you make a change and you stick to it, eventually the system tries really hard to pull you back. But sometimes yep. you can. You can create the new normal that, well, yeah, I do leave at a particular time and I get all my work done and that's, 
that's the way I do it. I'm not about FaceTime. I'm about effectiveness. But you're yeah. you're absolutely right. It has to be something that that yeah. you are gonna you're gonna do and you're gonna have support with and you're gonna have to be courageous about it. Very courageous. Do you have last words of wisdom for us? We're unfortunately coming up to our last little bit of time. What would you like to what would you most like to leave our listeners with? Well, I would like to most leave your listeners with I think the following conclusions. Number one, um, it is not acceptable for companies uh, to make you physically and or mentally ill, and the two, of course, are connected, that we have come to accept the unacceptable. We have come to, to, to normalize in the sense of it has become the norm, uh, to work too much, to take too little vacation, as you alluded to, uh, and to permit conditions at work that, we, that, that are really jeopardizing people's health and jeopardizing uh, the healthcare costs of the, of, the, of the society. So I think number one, the, the most important message is that this is not all right, and it needs and it needs to change. And number two, to to, to have people understand that there is. You know, while I would like to say dying for a paycheck is wonderful, and it certainly is, the epidemiological <laughs> evidence on which this book is based goes back decades. We have, there is an ex- extensive research literature on the effects of these elements of work environments on health. This is not something I have made up. This is not something that doesn't have an enormous um, evidentiary base. And number three, if we are serious, about controlling the soaring healthcare costs, not only in the United States, but around the world. We have to do something about the workplace because three quarters, according to the World Economic Forum, three quarters of all healthcare costs come from chronic disease. We know from the research literature that chronic disease comes from stress and from the unhealthy individual behaviors such as smoking, drinking, and overeating that stress induces. And, stress, and Dr. Dr. Pfeffer, I'm going to need... ...comes from work. I'm going to need to... Hold you there. Thank you so very much, Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer is the author of Dying for a Paycheck and Leadership BS and the Human Equation. He can be, you can learn more about him at jeffreypfeffer.com and on Twitter and Facebook at Jeffrey Pfeffer. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Ken Dolan Del Vecchio for Work Life Confidential. I'd like to thank our producer, our executive producer, Randall Libero, and our engineer, Josh. Thanks very much. We'll look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you for listening to Work Life Confidential with Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. We hope you've taken a bit of wisdom from today's program that will help you at work and home. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have an outstanding week.